0: What a week it was in lottery world. Now, if you're not familiar with the lottery, uh, it, the lottery is the way you get rich quick. Uh, and this past week, uh, we had two different occasions I'll tell you about this morning where some pretty amazing stories. Uh, two tickets matched the winning mega lottery, the Mega Millions a jackpot of $648 million this past week. $648 million uh, each winner's cash payout comes to $173,819,742.50. I thought it was interesting that they actually list the change. You know, like, 50 cents, where's my 50 cents? Uh, oh, and that's before taxes. You know, the government, they, does take a bite. Now, the odds of getting all six numbers correct for the second largest Mega Millions jackpot were 1 in 259 million I know those are numbers that are just mind-boggling, so let me bring those down to earth here and give you some more practical, easier things, things for you to see uh, that are more likely to happen to us than collecting a mega-millions jackpot. This is from the Harvard School of Public Health. The chances of dying from a bee sting are 1 in 6.1 million. The chances of winning the lottery, 1 in 259 million. All right, from the U.S. Golf Association, the number of amateur golfers making a hole-in-one on a par 3, the chances of that, 1 in 12,500. I didn't realize it was that easy. (laughs) From State Farm, uh, a study on collisions between vehicles and deer in Hawaii where there are very few deer, State Farm says the chances are 1 in 6,267 that you'll hit a deer on vacation in Honolulu. Uh, From the National Weather Service, the chance of being struck by lightning over an 80-year lifetime—one in ten thousand—that's frightening. When you think about the fact that you can't win the lottery in one in two hundred fifty-nine million, and the last but certainly not least, the chance of being attacked by a shark is one in eleven and a half million. Let's just thought—you know—these things are are unbelievably impossible, and yet so many people, because it's it's kind of ironic that the more people that play the lottery the the worse the odds get of winning and yet people when they think there's this small infinitesimal chance that they can become a mega millionaire they will plunk down their buck or 10 bucks or how many ever bucks they got to do it and, and yet there are so many things in life that they could invest their time and resources in that would produce more happiness. When I think about the lottery and other people talk about it, maybe you sit around and you dream about it. What would you do if you hit the lottery? A lot of folks imagine that it would make them happy. And, and I have to tell you, I, I don't uh, disagree. I think for at least a season, you'd be very happy. You could be very happy on a yacht and you could be happy doing lots of things. Happiness you can buy uh, on the short term. But Today, we're talking about Christmas joy, and the joy of this Advent season, and the joy that is spoken of in the Bible, and it would be important for us to be able to distinguish between happiness and joy, because joy is something you cannot buy. See, if we're going to talk about Advent joy, and we're going to sing songs like, joy to the world, the Lord has come, if we're going to say, you know, let's have a service of joy, we probably ought to know what it is first, because... it isn't happiness. From a biblical standpoint, on a number of occasions, the, the command to rejoice or to have joy or to produce joy has zero to do with your circumstances. In the Apostle Paul's case, he wrote to rejoice in the Lord always when he was in prison. In Philippians 4.4, 4, you also see in Nehemiah, chapter 8 verse 10 where Nehemiah says the joy of the Lord is our strength and this comes on the heels of being released from captivity and discovering just how broken and sinful the people of Israel were it was at a moment of great distress and sadness and he's saying don't mourn the joy of the Lord is our strength in the Psalms Psalm 30 when faced with their sin the nation of Israel is told that joy comes in the morning, that morning may last for an evening. When we talk about joy, it's independent of circumstances. When we talk about happiness, it's almost always geared to something that externally can make our world feel a little better. I use this to describe it for myself. For me, joy is the gladness of resting with family while watching Christmas vacation on TV during the holidays. That's just joy to me. Right, it's, it's not necessarily the movie. I've seen it a thousand times. It's just the state of being. It's a state of mind. It's a state of heart. Uh, happiness would be how Clark Griswold's circumstances change once he gets the Christmas bonus. See, the whole Clark Griswold home is in the toilet. Everybody's at each other's throats, and he thinks he's going to get the... Christmas bonus and he doesn't, he gets the jelly of the month club or the year club and then the whole world comes unglued for him and at the end he gets his Christmas bonus plus 20% and joy! See that's what they think joy is and that's happiness. Something changed and it made me happier. That's not what we're talking about. Joy is more substantially a state of mind or a presence of contentment that is independent of those circumstances. D.L. Moody Says this about joy. I think there's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is caused by things which happened around me, and circumstances will mar it. But joy flows right on through trouble. Joy flows on through the dark. Joy flows in the night as in the day. Joy flows all through persecution and opposition. It flows right along, for it is an unceasing fountain bubbling up in the heart, a secret spring which the world can't see and don't know anything about. And unfortunately, I can say that in seasons of a Christian's life, we can, too, agree that we don't know much about joy. We can allow our lives to be very much dictated by how things are going. Am I getting the raise at work? Am I getting that special someone to come along at the pace of which I wish they would come along? You know, are things working out for me in our life? When, when I start to gauge my emotions and feelings based on my circumstances in life, I can go up and down and all around and live my life waiting for happiness to make me happy instead of resting in a joy that is talked about in this particular passage. A joy, interestingly enough, that came to These wise men from another country in the simple hope that what they were seeing was actually true, that God was intervening into their lives, that God was moving to show that he was real to those who were looking for him. Uh, I have a couple things to share with you this morning about Advent joy. Because I think if we're going to celebrate joy, we're going to sing about joy, and yet it's elusive to us we probably ought to think and look in this passage to see, is is there a way that we can get joy in our lives? The first thing I'll share with you this morning is this, is that Advent joy, the joy of Christ, the joy of Christmas, it is a byproduct. It itself is not something you can make happen. It is something that is a byproduct. In the passage here, verses 9 through 12, it says in Matthew 2, after they heard the king, they went on their way and the star they'd seen when it rose ahead of them uh, until it stopped I'm sorry and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. So something happened to these wise people from the East, and perhaps I had to say something a little bit about them to start with. It is clear that they were from another country. It is also equally clear from the text and from what we know from some historical criticism and historical uh, 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 commentaries on the subject that these were wise men in the sense that they were astrologers. They were people that were looking to the stars for answers to life's problems, answers to life's quizzes, answers to you know, the eternal questions that all of us would ask. Now, it's important to point out that they were non-Jews, doing something that the Old Testament absolutely forbid them to do, which was to practice any kind of divination or look to something other than God for their answers. And yet into their world of combing the skies enters this star and it breaks into their world to help them know that God loves them, that God is pursuing them. And that is what propelled them. It's what gave them joy. It is what made them think there's hope. Uh, Unlike the, uh, more so I would say, than the the topics we've covered in Advent thus far, hope, love, and peace, joy is really what comes as a result. It isn't isn't something that is an external force on our life. It is an emotion or a contentment that is the byproduct of, of something that is substantially taking place in our life that gives us hope and love and peace in spite of our circumstances. I, I would say too with regards to these these wise men from the east, uh, and this is merely a side note uh, regarding religion and comparative cultures, and that is that oftentimes you will hear people say that that Christians can tend to be a bit myopic, a bit uh, a sense that they think the world it really centers around their religion and world. Potentially, you can be, you can be called ethnocentric because you, you think that Jesus is the answer to the entire world's problems or that Jesus would be the only way that people could come to know peace and love and hope and joy, the only way they could be restored to God. And, and I would say that from this text, what we can see is that these wise men from a non-Israelite country don't really care that they're being told they have to follow a carpenter, or they won't know it's a carpenter, but uh, that there's a king coming, and he is Jewish and there to worship him. In other words, this started in the Middle East. This is not a North American thing, and it doesn't really matter what your particular cultural background is. Uh, For any number of reasons, God decided to originate this great salvation in the Middle East. And all of us, regardless of where we're from, like these kings, have to come And bow down to this one, if he be the king of kings, if he be God incarnate. It is not necessarily, uh, it, it isn't at all restricted to Jewish culture. This is a salvation that would be for a joy for the entire world. The narrative itself here in Matthew underscores a truth that Matthew is presenting. And that is that Jesus is this promised Messiah and that he was a real threat to the kings of the earth. In particular, Herod was threatened by the existence of the king of the Jews. And when I think about what these innocent, really, uh, wise men would be experiencing is they see the star up in the sky. It gives them joy. It gives them hope. They sense, okay, I'm going to follow. I'm going to head for Jerusalem, which would be the center of activity. You know, when you're going to come eat, you're going to come west, you're going to go to Jerusalem, you're going to check things out. And it's in this encounter in Jerusalem that all of a sudden, this talk of, hey, we saw this star, we believe there's a king of the Jews being born, we've come to worship him, and it stirs up, according to the text, Jerusalem, and it certainly stirs up this king. And that's Matthew's attempt to tell us that when Jesus comes into the world, it's for everybody. And it was very much undermining the sense that Herod had that this is my world, and this is my thing. And in Jerusalem, they would have been like, hold on a second. This is a salvation that's for others outside of Israel? All of a sudden now this Jesus comes in and this king has come in to produce a sense of hope and joy even in people who aren't part of those controlled circumstances. Joy more than the others is a byproduct of God's intervention in our life. The New Testament refers to joy as a fruit of the Spirit. Uh, in Galatians 5, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, faithfulness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. In other passages in the New Testament, Jesus would actually say in Matthew chapter 3 8, produce fruit in keeping with repentance in Matthew 7 18 Jesus says a good tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit in John 15 8 Jesus says this is to my father's glory that you would bear much fruit showing yourself to be my disciples so we are told on one hand that fruit is a byproduct of something that you know it is something that happens when nurturing has taken place at, at the tree level in, in the root system of some plant or some tree, something healthy is taking place and it produces fruit. You can't simply just just shazam, create fruit in your life. There, something has to take place. It is a byproduct of something that takes place in our lives. We're told to produce it though, and effectively what that means is that we need to do what we need to nurture and produce an environment in which this fruit can actually manifest itself. We can't produce the fruit. Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. I'm the vine, you are the branches. How was this fruit then produced in the Magi? These astrologers who were looking for stars to life questions, well, into their non-Jewish world of Old Testament, quote-unquote, theological error, intervenes a God who loves them. God's entrance into their world is the source of their joy. While not specifically mentioned by name, God's hand of providence is obvious. A star has guided the wise men all the way to Bethlehem. The prophecy that was recorded in Isaiah was exactly told exactly where this Messiah should be born. They were warned in a dream to go home a different way. And God's move toward them overall, the incarnation, the coming of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, is more evidence of God coming to intervene into our lives. And this is the source of joy. God's move towards us, the living presence of God in our lives, is a joy that doesn't change. A joy that isn't conditioned upon circumstances. It's a joy that says, I know and enjoy God's presence because He is pursuing me, because He loves me. I know what it means to follow God because He has come and sought me out. Joy, fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Lord, it's it's a byproduct of you and I recognizing God's love and care for us. Advent joy is a byproduct. One of my professors, R.C. Sproul, said this If we are serving God without joy, there is something wrong with that service. If joy is not characteristic in our lives, it may be a sign that we are not Christians at all. Now, why would my professor make such a harsh statement? Because for some, that's like startling. Hold on, because I don't have joy, I might not be a Christian. Well, let me unpack this for you a little bit. If joy is a byproduct of something someone else does in your life, then the opposite of joy, which would either be sadness, it could be anger, or it could be a lot of emotions, it would be the opposite of genuine joy in someone's life. These things are characteristic that that work hasn't taken place in your life. It's not a judgment on you, like get joy, or that means you're going to go to hell. It means there's something missing. Perhaps you've never known this kind of this solemn peace. I know for me, there's no greater joy than rewarding my children when they do well at things. I just like giving them stuff. It's actually something I enjoy doing. Most people would say, you you can give away money and feel good about it. And I was like, yeah, on certain occasions, I, I feel a certain joy in giving away resources. My son comes home with great grades. I love it. It makes me happy. It it produces in me not a sense of obligation, but a sense of joy that causes me to give. In the New Testament, it talks about cheerful giving. The only way anybody gives cheerfully is if they've been given so much that they're overflowing with joy, that they've been pursued by a God who loves them, pursued by a God who gives them hope, pursued by a God who, who cares about them and has demonstrated this in the, in the birth of Jesus, that he's not waiting for you to come to him. He's coming to you. He's chasing you down. Unfortunately, in our religious worlds, we've been told that, you know, in order for you to have joy, you've got to get your collective religious crud together. You've got to believe exactly the right things. You've got to know everything that can be known and you've got to obey in perfect harmony with God's scriptures. And once you have all that in line, then you can experience a joy. That's not the joy of the Lord. That's the joy of your own righteousness and why Dr. Sproul would be mostly concerned about people who lack joy in their life is because there would be something that would indicate to him that you aren't able to just rest in the finished work of Christ. You're not able to just simply relax, take a deep breath. Have you ever had a a cult person bang on your door and want to come in and talk to you about their cult? These are not the most joyful people in the world, and you can tell. Right away, they have a glazed-over look on their eyes, you know, and, and they talk to you like robots, and you go, okay, why would I want to do what you're doing? You don't look like you're having that much fun. And the reason that they're not having that much fun is because they're doing these things to try to get God to say, okay, I will relent. I will no longer punish you forever. You've satisfactorily gone about your neighborhood, alienating your friends. (laughs) So for me, it's a matter of saying, why is there joy absent? Is joy absent because they've not realized that God has come to rescue them. They don't have to rescue themselves. This is Advent joy, it is a byproduct of understanding and graciously under, understanding God's gracious pursuit of you and of me. In British Columbia this past week, another wonderful lottery story. Unlike most big lottery winners who spend days, even months, trying to figure out how they'll spend their newfound riches, Tom Chris needed only a moment to decide where his 40 million in winnings would go, all to charity. Top on the list would be the medical center that cared for his late wife when she developed cancer. Still, it took Chris more than six months to tell anybody he'd won, including family members. The retired Calgary executive had been lunching between rounds of golf in Palm Springs when his cell phone rang, and he was told the news. The former CEO of a large electric company said he didn't need the money for himself or his family. Quote, I guess I've been fortunate enough through my career, you know, that I had with the company that I was with to be fortunate enough to have a good living and to be able to remain, to be able to have a good living now and look after my kids so I really don't need the money. His plan was to donate his winnings in honor of his wife Jan who died in February of 2012 after a long battle with cancer and he delivered his first big check, $1.2 million, this past Tuesday, to the Alberta Cancer Foundation, which collects donations for uh, Calgary's Cancer Center. He strode into their office, check in hand without any prior warning. He surprised us, they said. He said this is phase one of his gifts and his intention was to make an annual gift. He stressed this was just the beginning and intended to give away 40 million. And I'll finally say this, Chris acknowledges His actions may spark generosity in others, but he's not doing this to inspire somebody else. He's doing it because his heart told him to do so. Now, the the most obvious point to make with regards to his story is that he had all kinds of money, so he was able to give it all away. But this should tell us something. See, if our hearts don't know the fullness of joy, if our hearts don't know the fullness of God's kindness, if our hearts don't genuinely know the love of God we don't have anything to give away. If, if we don't have more than enough for our lives, it's very difficult to feel like as an overflow of our lives we're going to give to others. And so when we think about Advent joy in our lives, the question is, how, Lord, do you want to pour into my life a joy that I might be able to overflow to others like this? Advent joy, in addition to being a byproduct, is, as we can see in the lives of these Uh, these wise men. It's a big propellant. In other words, it is what drives them to do what they do. In verse 9, it says, after they heard the king, they went on their way. On to verse 10, it says, when they found Jesus, they bowed down and worshiped him. They opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And, and, and it's pretty obvious that it, this experience they had with Jesus, the real experience of God coming to them, the real experience of joy that was born of them saying, I am being pursued by God. He loves me. I no longer have to be afraid of him. This is what caused them to say, I'm going to continue this long foot-on-foot trek from the east to Bethlehem. I'm going to bow down and worship. I'm going to dip into my treasures and give. I'm going to obey God and avoid going back to Herod. All of these things are things that are propelled by this experience they had with real joy. Not a joy of circumstance, because I can tell you the truth, I can't imagine walking through the Middle East on foot and ever being happy about it. I mean, these folks really went to town, And I would say to you and to me that unless there's joy in our life as there was in theirs, it's very unlikely that you and I are going to manifest the same level of worship and obedience and following. The starting point is experiencing genuine joy in Christ. And so you and I are at a place where we would say, what does it mean for us to know this joy? The magi make an effort to find him in response to His pointing them in His direction. They bow down and worship Him with gifts and obey the Spirit's leading. These people were propelled to offer a life yielded to Christ. They experienced joy in response to God's pursuit of Him. This is what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verses 15 and 16. He says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father I've made known to you. You did not choose me but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Fruit that will last and so that you so that whatever you ask in my name the Father will give you. This is my command to love each other. What propelled Jesus' disciples to go to their deaths for Jesus was the realization that they were his friends now. They weren't at odds with God any longer, that because of Jesus' pursuit and choice of them, they can now chill, they could relax in the presence of God. That joy, that peace, that hope, the things that are celebrated during the Christmas season, the coming of the Messiah, God with us, these things are what are to drive us and propel us into lives of glad submission to Jesus, in the absence of a real understanding of his pursuit of us, in the absence of genuine joy born of a recognition that he isn't expecting you to do anything but call out to him and be his friend, why would we think that we would try to turn the world upside down? What would propel us to do such a thing? Broken as we are, selfish as I am, I'll speak for myself. But scripture seems to tell me that all of us are in the same boat, that our instinct is to take care of number one. And if you're saying, how can I have a life that sort of looks full of joy and a life that is seemingly full of worship and submission and obedience and the experience of God, I would say it's, it's glad, just glad dependence on Jesus and a recognition of what Jesus has already done for you, that he's pursued you that he's rescued you, that he's put you into this wonderful, privileged place of being his friends. I'm continuously amazed at the experience of uh, uh, the rock singer Bono from U2. Um, He uh, does unbelievable things around the world, and and if you ever are curious, the, 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 the money he gives away And the money he actually raises by virtue of his celebrity would blow you away. Hundreds of millions of dollars a year. He generates through his work and his charities and his appearances. He gives away so much. And he has worldwide fame. And if you've ever wondered what really drives him, I share this final thought with you here on Christmas. A Christmas thought from U2's Bono. The idea that there's a force of love and logic behind the universe is overwhelming to start with if you believe it. Actually, maybe even far-fetched to start with. But the idea that that same love and logic would choose to describe itself as a baby born in straw and poverty is genius And brings me to my knees, literally. See, your God, your Father, has not simply waited for you to get your collective stuff together. He is pursuing you. He loves you. He wants you. And he wants you to know today that he's done all he can, starting with his being coming in Jesus and it is that that we celebrate with joy this christmas let us pray lord today